Welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church. I'm Connie. And I'm Danny. And as God is transforming the seasons into this beautiful fall moment, God is also seeking to transform our hearts and lives through the celebration of worship. We're glad that you've joined us. Come on in. Our first reading today comes from the Old Testament book of Leviticus in chapter 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes from your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. And then continuing in Leviticus 25. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives you 49 years. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud. On the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land, and you shall hallow the fiftieth year, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants." It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow or reap or reap the aftergrowth or harvest the unpruned vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat only what the field itself produces. This is the word of the Lord. Our second lesson is taken from Mark's gospel. It is the familiar story of the widow's might. Let's open our hearts and minds and listen again with fresh ears. We are in Mark 12, 38 through 44. That is Mark 12, 38 through 44. Listen. As he taught, Jesus speaking, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance, say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put two small copper coins, which are worth about a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them has, have contributed out of their abundance, 
But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So one Sunday morning, little country church, preachers going on and on, circling the point, circling the point, but can't seem to get to it, can't seem to find it. Eyes are rolling back, some of this. I know, other churches experience that, crazy. (laughs) When finally, a little boy to his mother says, in a whisper that everyone can hear, Mommy, do you think if we just gave him the money, we could go home? (laughs) Well, yes. Ushers, let's, no. We are in the middle of our stewardship campaign. That is traditionally our time where we reflect on the goodness of God in our lives, the gift of God through Jesus Christ. God is our redeemer, creator, and sustainer, and our response to that in the giving of our time, talent, and treasure. It is no secret we've been hearing from great speakers who are sharing their faith about why it's important to them that they give back to our Creator God. And certainly the widow's mite story is right in the zone. We get it. We're like that little boy. Get it, preacher. Know what's coming. She gave, not out of her abundance, but out of her poverty, we should give more. Let's do it. Let's go. Amen. Well, there's more going on here than meets the eye, as is often the case with really almost anything Jesus says at any time. So I want to approach this, and this is not a parable. This happened. Jesus and the disciples were there at the temple. They were observing what was going on. So this isn't a made-up story that Jesus makes up to teach or to clarify a point. He's using this as a teachable moment for the disciples. Now in Mark's gospel, and of course we know Mark is the shortest gospel, the one that we think Luke and Matthew drew heavily from in their gospel, he is brief, uses the word immediately more than any other gospel. It is to the point, it is quicker, less storytelling than certainly Matthew, Luke, and John. And in this uh, chapter 12 of Mark, we are already in Holy Week. Jesus has already come in uh, with his donkey on Palm Sunday, on his donkey. And we begin, we're generally on day two, on Tuesday of Holy Week. So Jesus is telling his and sharing with his disciples for literally the last time in this, his human life, pre-resurrection. So in the midst of this teaching, Jesus comes and observes. And first opens up by condemning the scribes. Now, who were the scribes? Well, they are what it sounds like they were. Who were scribes? Well, they write things down. The scribes were very important in that time. They were those who had several jobs as a part of their title. They recopied sacred texts. Without the scribes, there would be 
no Torah. Without the scribes, there would be no continuation of those holy texts to be reproduced. But with the Pharisees, they also shared a, a love and a knowledge and a working job description that had to do with the law. So if you needed a marriage contract or there were other civil contracts, again, that was under Mosaic law, they would be the ones knowledgeable that you would have to go to to get deals done, to get contracts made. They often were interpreters as the Pharisees were of the law. But the problem comes when they continued, as the Pharisees did, to add on their own job descriptions to give themselves more import and more power over the temple structure of the day, over their Jewish family. And Jesus doesn't mention the Pharisees here. He's specifically going after the scribes and mentions one offense he starts off talking about hypocrisy. They like to wear their pretty robes and their gorgeous stoles in front of all and proclare with intelligence and articulation how wonderful they are. That's them. Not, not. They like to have the best seats at the banquets. They like to be recognized in their religious finery. Often they were attached to the wealthy who would have them, again, do several of those job descriptions for them. But then Jesus says, they devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance, say long prayers. <laughs> Guilty. Second part, not the first. They devour widows' houses. What does that mean? Well, we think one of their job descriptions was to administrate inheritance of husbands who die, their estates or their money or their assets would go to these widows. And the scribes were kind of the legal authority there to make that happen. And often we believe they cheated the widows out of a lot of what was their due. They literally stole from these widows who were more than second or third or fourth class citizens. They had no power. They had no family. They had no income. They had no standing. Widows and orphans, we hear that phrase a lot. So important and so outcast and powerless and voiceless were they that that phrase, widows and orphans, became a point of import to be cared for in that community Old Testament through New Testament. That's when Stephen and kind of, as we look at it, the first diaconate in Acts are put together because the widows and orphans aren't being cared for as much as they should. So Stephen gets called to do that. So they are literally stealing from the only thing that these widows may have to help them. So they're Hypocrites, they are thieves. And Jesus is calling them out. So then he moves, we are at the temple. They are observing, and our understanding is that there were 12 to 13 stations where there were metal boxes 
that was the treasury. There wasn't one central treasury building. They went to one window, got their receipt stamped. It was kind of around in different places, and again, metal. And in that day, there was no paper money. And so everything given, as Vicky alluded to, could be heard. And for those scribes and those priests who made their income off of the temple, they could hear those donations. And we hope that they're thinking, oh, we can hear it. There it comes. That's more people we can feed, more widows and orphans we can help, more teaching we can engage in. We've got to fix this part of the temple. There's a crack here. There's scorpions infiltrating the youth room in the temple. We've got to get that fixed. Here's a little bit to help that. You've got to keep the lights on. Well, the window's open. Windows. They could have been thinking as they heard all of the clinking of the donations, and we're going to be able to do great stuff to honor God. But Jesus is chastising those who hear it as a Las Vegas slot machine. You know it when you hear that. They're designed to make clinky noises if you've ever been around a slot machine. Hands down, hands down. And it's made to, to make sound of winning. Clink, clink, clink. Everybody draws attention. This little light goes off on top. Woo! Clink, 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 clink. And the winner there is thinking, cha-ching, my money. And Jesus is calling these scribes and others who benefit off of these taxes and donations who think that. Cha-ching. You can find them by that lake house on the Sea of Galilee. Cha-ching. Finally get my new fancy robe, all hand-stitched. Take the family to Rome. Again, Jesus is calling them out for their hypocrisy and the way that they have added import to themselves and the way that they are leading the people away from God, just like the Pharisees. It's not that they were bad in their intent or their beginning. Law is important and needs to be kept. The scribe's job is important and needs to be done. But they started to move away from the reason those laws were put into place, and that was to maintain and grow their relationship with God and with one another. Instead, lifting themselves up and being important. So Jesus is calling them out right from the beginning. And so they're sitting down and they're watching all around. Clink, 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 clink. And again, there's nothing wrong with the donations that Jesus is seeing or the sounds. A lot of it comes down to the intent. If on Consecration Sunday, November 1st, in a couple of weeks, we will bring our tithes and offerings for the next year, and we call that Consecration Sunday because we will bless what has been given and pledged, consecrate that, make it holy, dedicate it to God. Now, if we were to do that and say, everybody come down, lay your loose plate offerings here and your pledge cards and other donations here on the communion table. And everybody comes down, they put their stuff, they go back. And then here he comes. That guy with one of those big lotto checks. 
You know, the huge ones that like three people it takes, six million dollars, win the lottery. He comes down with his pledge on it and he holds it up. Look at everybody, make sure the camera can see. You got to get that. Lays it on the communion table. That's different than the widow. That is seeking not to give glory to God, but to glorify himself. Not giving out of passion, love, or joy, or thanksgiving for God, and in our case, Jesus Christ, but to make sure everyone sees how benevolent he or she is. Jesus looks at this woman. He says, look, hey, everybody look, look, look what I'm looking at. This poor widow who Jesus could see and observe by the way she looked and acted. No power, no status, no clout, no appreciation. Goes up and, think, think. as Vicky said, two little pieces of low-class metal. It only wouldn't even make a penny. Woohoo! What's that going to do? Buy us a new wing in the temple? That going to get us a new altar? No, of course not. But Jesus looks and says, what she has done is much more important than even those who have given so much. Now, this thread of Jesus criticizing continues to run because you notice Jesus didn't go to the woman and say, give all you have to God. Give it all and I'll take care of you. Remember a kind of a similar story in First Kings with Elijah, First Kings 17, 8, he is on the run. He is famished, runs into this widow with a son and asks for the last bit of food that they have. She gives it and then God takes care of her through that famine. That food continues to regenerate, to get them through that time. There's no such guarantee here. Jesus doesn't go to her and say, you give what you have, and I'm going to make sure you are cared for. I'm going to make sure that those coins continue. Every time you put one down, another will appear in your hand. That, that doesn't happen. There's no assurance. There's no interaction between Jesus and the woman. And one of the things we think he is chastising those scribes and the Pharisees is why did the woman think she had to give everything that she had? Yes, we like the goal of making the sacrifice. Sacrificial giving helps us to get closer to Christ. It pushes our negative self-centered selves back so that we can receive God. Absolutely, sacrificial giving does that. But this is everything she had to live on. Is that fair? Is that what Jesus is asking of this woman who has no income, no support, no voice, no life? The answer is no. But he uses it as a teaching moment and to criticize the structure that would insinuate to this woman, if not openly telling her that she had to give everything she had to the temple because that's the way it works. That's God's law. You have to abide. But in the midst of that, Jesus still notices her, shows the rest of the disciples, look, 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 
She's giving it all. She doesn't have to. It wasn't even worth her time as a valuable source of income or revenue. But she alludes to something larger. And that is that her two little bits, giving her literal two cents worth, is all about her connection with God. She didn't get up that morning and say, woo-wee, boy, look at what they're going to do with my, my two worthless coins. She could have very easily thought, why? I'm, I'm not important at all. I don't need to go. Much like in our current state of voting, we could say, what, what is my one vote going to do? And she could have stayed home. And yet she was the one who, when she went to the polls, went to temple, to the treasury. Jesus lifted up and said, she is the one of value and worth. Because every vote matters. You put all those together and something happens. Her donations, meager and paltry and ridiculous in the eyes of the power structure, still, when placed with everything else, has transforming power and possibility. But even more than that, she speaks to that part of stewardship which isn't money-focused. She was connected to her God. She was thankful for God in her life. And she gave what she had. Friends, stewardship also, uh, often we reduce to just giving the money. Got to pay the lights, got to pay the bills, got to pay the staff, got to do what we do. Well, yeah, of course. But the church benefits from your relation to God first and foremost. You give to God and it is the church that benefits from that. You don't give to the church hoping that God will benefit from that. Stewardship comes not just with your money, but everything you are, the life you've been given, the friends and family you've been given. Sometimes we don't appreciate all those things or see them as gifts, but they are. And this is our way to say, as she did, it's a spiritual discipline, giving. Everything we do in the church is stewardship. You come to the church to volunteer or be a part of a Bible study or come to a play or come put shoeboxes together for children in other countries. You are sacrificing time. You are sacrificing talent. You are sacrificing treasure. Everything we do as disciples out in the world, we have to stand up with courage like this woman, although we often feel worthless and powerless and not empowered or knowledgeable or faithful enough like she was. And she stood up, she did her thing, she gave what she had, and Jesus said she is the one of worth. Now Jesus didn't say everybody else is bad or don't give if you're going to give large amounts. It's the intent in which it is given. The big check mentality, <laughs> look at me, versus a spiritual discipline and connectedness with Christ. And that is where the woman excels. And that is why Christ lifts her up. She takes courage, she takes a chance. The sermon is called Dynamite. 
not going to good times with JJ. But the first word dino, and it's not might, M-I-G-H-T, it's M-I-T-E, the widow's might. Dino in and of itself is a climbing term for those who climb on rock faces, those who do that kind of crazy, amazingly strong moves and discipline and sport. I can't, I, I wouldn't even start. Climbing up a rock face, cliffs, mountains, all of it, crazy. There's a move called a dino. And I've got a picture, Connie, Gary, if you could, I don't, I don't know if you can see it. I think you can see it at home probably better. This man's name is Dan Osmond. He's near Lake Tahoe, California. Now the dino, not dino like dynamite, which means power. I almost went with that, but I like this better. Dino is a climbing term that when you are moving from one secure location, you've got your secure, one secure location, you're hanging on, you've got your handholds, maybe foothold, and then you make an aggressive move over the rock face to another handhold and foothold to find your new place of security, to move up or down or whatever you're trying to do. It is an aggressive and courageous move. Once you start, there's no going back. It is your momentum that gets you from the first handhold to the second. And if you look, there are no connections. This guy's not even tethered. If he falls, he dies. He's a professional climber. Please don't try this at home. And he is completely clear of the rock wall. You can see all the way to the ground between his torso and the wall. He is completely free, no handholds. He is jumping in from one to the other. And this is our call today. As the woman who has no standing, no power, no voice, with courage stands up to share what she has because she loves and gives thanks to God for what she has been given. She makes that move and we are called the same. We are called to take that, what we would call as a leap of faith. One way to move from stagnant spirituality, one way to move from, I don't know if I'm where God wants me to be, I don't feel like I'm growing, is to take this dynamite leap. The woman did it and showed us. And we are to take that courageous step. There is risk, but once we go, we are always tethered by Jesus Christ. We don't have to make that kind of move, but we are called to make our own move of courage and faith. So as we contemplate how we are going to share what we have been given, it is first and foremost about our spiritual discipline, our connectedness with Jesus Christ and giving thanks for all that we have been given. And then we are being called to make this move, a spiritual leap from our safety to a new spot of faith that we are being called to. So let's go and let's jump together. Hallelujah. Amen.